Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, launching the Emergencies Act inquiry. This commission exists to promote transparency, accountability, and public confidence. We needed to take action. We took it in a way that was measured, that was responsible, that was time-limited. Was the government justified invoking the Emergencies Act? And what happens if a national inquiry finds they were not? MPs dig into that on day one of the debate. And investigating Hockey Canada. We're learning today that executives at the embattled organization resigned after reading the scathing findings of an interim report into their conduct. We've got all the details. Plus, Trump subpoenaed as the January 6th committee hears damning testimony. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. A U.S. House committee votes unanimously to subpoena the former U.S. president for documents and testimony about the deadly riot on Capitol Hill. This is Power Play. Now, let's get to the players. The evidence will show <clears throat> that the invocation of the Emergencies Act was a reasonable and necessary decision given the escalating volatile and urgent circumstances across the country. The answer is, is that there was no reasonable and probable grounds to invoke the Emergencies Act and that the government exceeded their jurisdiction. Many people in Ottawa felt like they were prisoners in their own home and they felt abandoned and they felt unsafe by the police and by all the levels of government. There were breakdowns in governance here between city, province, federal government. Eight months after the convoy of anti-mandate protesters occupied Ottawa, a public inquiry into the unprecedented use of the Emergencies Act is finally underway. Ontario Court Justice Paul Rouleau warned this inquiry is not meant to pass judgment on crimes for anyone involved. Now, dozens of witnesses will testify, everyone from convoy organizers to the Prime Minister. While the Commissioner said he doesn't plan for the proceedings to be adversarial, there will be a fight from all sides to have their, their voices heard. Now, in the 30 days available, and that is the amount of time that will be there, so we are going to ask the question right now. These key political questions, wanting to know if this will be answered. Was the government justified in evoking the Emergencies Act? And what should happen if they weren't? Let's find out. Joining me now here in studio, the Emergency Preparedness Parliamentary Secretary, Yasser Nakfi. You're also the MP for Parliament Hill, the area around Parliament Hill. We also have uh, from the Conservatives, the Emergency Preparedness Critic, Dane Lloyd and NDP House Leader Peter Julian. Welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for making the time. Now, Mr. Nackby, your constituents were the ones who felt the brunt of the protests here on Parliament Hill. <clears throat> Do you think that Canadians fully understand the impact of what happened here? Oh, I really hope so. I mean, I want to remind Canadians uh, what we lived through over that 24-day period when downtown Ottawa was completely occupied uh, by, by people, by, by trucks, mm -hmm. uh, not just the street in front of Parliament Hill, but also the residential downtown areas. There were members of, of my community that I represent who were held hostage in their own homes, their, their elders who were not able to go get their prescription medicine or people who would be able to take their children to daycare, not to mention 
Hundreds of small businesses were totally shuttered over that 24-day period. It was a pure occupation, and there was no other alternative but to end it. And uh, the only way in the end was by invoking the Emergencies Act. So, Mr. Lloyd, I'll bring you in here now. You heard what Mr. Nakfi said, that that was the only way. Now, the Prime Minister and several Cabinet Ministers are set to testify. What answers are you looking for from the Prime Minister and his Cabinet? I'm looking for clear evidence that they met the, the very high threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act. This is an unprecedented move by this government that limited the civil liberties of Canadians. This is the successor of the War Measures Act, a very extreme piece of legislation. I'm glad to see that uh, Justice Rouleau's uh, commission is, is ongoing. I'm looking for transparency from the government. And if uh, it's shown that they did not meet the threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act, I think Canadians will, will pass very harsh judgment on this Liberal government. Mr. Julian, what do you want to hear from the Prime Minister specifically? I, I, I was in Ottawa for that entire period, and, and the suffering of the people of Ottawa was very apparent. Uh, hundreds of businesses were closed, people were thrown out of work. Seniors and people with disabilities couldn't get the delivery of, of groceries and medication that was so important. And 24 hours a day until the injunction, there was this massive wave of sound that was making uh, making people hurting people uh, no doubt uh, in some cases with permanent hearing loss and making them unable to sleep there there was a profound unease in in Ottawa so the the NDP has supported the the idea that we have an inquiry that is part of a democratic uh, process in the democratic system. We co-chair uh, the parliamentary committee that is looking into this as well. These are all important things. I, I do note that the convoy participants don't share those democratic values, wanted the overthrow of the government. And I think all of the impacts on regular people and the fact that the government initially didn't act for weeks are all part of what needs to be considered uh, by the justice and needs to be considered by the parliamentary committee. This is important work. This is democratic work. And we shouldn't be looking to score political points. We should be looking to get to the truth. And important that we will hear from some of those people that were impacted. Now, Mr. Nakfi, I wanted to ask you specifically, if the commission finds that your government was not justified, what should happen then? Should the prime minister resign? Should the public safety minister resign? Who should take responsibility for this? I, I don't think we should be uh, pre prejudging the outcome uh, of the public inquiry. Uh, you know, Justice Rolo, under the Emergencies Act, have a, a sufficient power to to hear from witnesses. As you mentioned yourself, the Prime Minister uh, will be testifying as well. There is an unprecedented level of transparency in terms of cabinet documents uh, uh, that have been provided, and other ministers, along with the Prime Minister, will be testifying as well. But again, we have to remember the. The, the times we were living in back in the beginning of the mm -hmm. year, not only the occupation of Ottawa, but also the blockades we saw um, at various border crossings. Many of those were solved without the emergencies act. Yeah, but you, you didn't also, need it to solve those. But you also have to remember that there were weapons, for example, stash of weapons that were found uh, at uh, at Coots Crossing in Alberta. I mean, there was a, this was a very volatile situation that Canada was going through, and number one responsibility of any Canadian government is to ensure the security and safety of Canadians and that's why the government took that unprecedented but important decision uh, to invoke the Emergencies Act so that we can 
protect and secure Canadians. But to be clear, it's not going to be prejudging the decision. It's going to be a yes or no. Was the government justified or not? So if yes, then obviously you guys will walk away and take a bit, bit of a, a victory lap. If no, then what? Then who comes out and says, we're sorry, or you know, falls on the sword and says, that was my job, and you know, I should walk away from it? Invoking of Emergencies Act was about protecting Canadians, was making sure that residents of Ottawa... It was, there's Ottawa, no doubt about that. But, it, but, of if, Ottawa, but if he says that it was unjustified, then what? Then what does your government do? Well, I, I, I think we have to wait until this whole process. Today was day one. Uh, there's ample evidence uh, that, will, that will demonstrate that it was justified, that the legal test and the legal requirement was made uh, to invoke the Emergencies Act because it was necessary uh, to not only end the occupation right here in Ottawa and, and, and prevent the suffering of so many of my constituents as they were living through, but also uh, making sure that our border crossings uh, were open and safe for commerce uh, to, to continue and for people to, uh, for continue to, to make a living. I want to continue with Mr. Lloyd here. The Commissioner Rouleau, he said uh, that the biggest challenge is time. He's got a strict deadline. There's a 300-day deadline from when he was appointed to when he can complete the work. That can't be moved except by an order in council uh, and possibly, you know, all parties agreeing to it. The report has to be to Parliament by the 20th of February. Now, compared to Air India's commission, they had four years. Is this enough time to really get the full story and to get answers on what happened? I'm very concerned about the short timeline of this. I can understand why it was placed like that in the original legislation. It's important that, Canada, that this not drag on for years, that Canadians get answers in a quick manner. But I am very concerned about the short timeline. I think... Uh, you so know, then just quickly, can I ask you, would, you, would your party support extending it? Would your party support extending it then? Well, we'd have to see a plan. We wouldn't want this to turn into something that would go on for years and years. We need to see answers for Canadians. And, and so if, uh, if the government were to put forward a proposal uh, for a short extension, I think, I think we would consider that on its merits. And Mr. Julian, I'll just ask you quickly to answer on that as well. And, and you know, w what you hope happens in the short amount of time that Mr. Rouleau has, Justice Rouleau has. Well, we, we want to get to the truth. We, we have a lot of anecdotal evidence of, of what happened, uh, the appalling misery in Ottawa, the, the loss of jobs across the country, uh, the threats to law enforcement in Alberta. We know about all of those things. Uh, the justice's job is to go through that anecdotal evidence and, and make a determination. And, and so uh, I have no doubt it was, it was, it was interesting uh, to see the beginning of, of the inquiry today, uh, there's no doubt there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, what we want to do is see uh, the truth, and we want to get to the bottom of all of this. That's, that's why we're pushing at the parliamentary committee level, and that, that is why we support the inquiry as well. We appreciate that. We're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. MPs Nakfi, appreciate you joining us here in studio. MP Lloyd and Mr. Julian as well, thanks very much for being there. Now we go from our Capitol Hill to the other one south of the border. The committee investigating the January 6th U.S. Capitol attack reconvened for what is expected to be their last public hearing before the November midterm elections. Now each one of these seems to drop a bombshell every time. So let's get right to it with CTV News' Washington Bureau Chief Joy Malbin. Thanks for so much for being with us, Joy. Now this one did not disappoint former president donald trump has been subpoenaed to the hearings what was the reaction like there 
Yeah, that was a pretty dramatic way to end their closing argument that Donald Trump was at the center of this premeditated plot, what the committee alleges, uh, to uh, over to uh, rig the election um, and, and continue to say that the election was stolen from him. Uh, they voted uh, and uh, they said, look, Donald Trump was at the center of this and he should be held accountable. We need to hear what he has to say. Now, chances of that happening, uh, you know, very slim, although Part of me thinks Donald Trump would love this stage, would love to go against his critics. Now, as for Donald Trump on his Truth social media um, platform, he said, uh, why did they wait so long to ask me to testify? And then, of course, he trashed the committee, calling it a total bust and a laughing stock all over the world. Just leave it to him to weigh in like that, eh, Joy? I was going to ask you, the landscape around these hearings has changed since the last time they were heard. How does all this shape the fight that it, for the upcoming midterm elections? Well, look, uh, I mean, this was the committee's last chance. They will issue a report. But, um, you know, uh, the midterm elections are coming up. Republicans only need five seats to flip the House in their favor. Uh, they will disband this committee, uh, even though there will be a report. What they're trying to do is convince the American public that Donald Trump was at the center of what they claim is a premeditated plot to overturn the election. Uh, they showed some never-before-seen video of congressional leaders running for their lives, pleading for reinforcement. Uh, Mike Pence talking to Pelosi saying, can we still certify the election? Like people in America just didn't know, don't know how close democracy, uh, you know, uh, was almost overturned in this country. And as the committee members said, look, this could happen again, especially since Donald Trump is supporting so-called election deniers, candidates that he has supported. And of course, you know, if they win, if they do well, they could determine the elections all over this country. And it may very well be that Donald Trump decides to run for election himself, uh, you know, as president. Unbelievable. Thanks so much for this, Joy. We appreciate having you on. Now, next on Power Play, the interim report on Hockey Canada is now public. We've learned the board resigned after members read the Cromwell report. Plus, the New Brunswick minister takes a dig at Premier Blaine Higgs in a resignation letter. All that is coming up right after this timeout. Welcome back. Well, we have new details on the embattled Hockey Canada story. Earlier this week, CEO Scott Smith and his entire board of directors stepped down following months of pressure. We've learned now that former Supreme Court Justice Thomas Cromwell recommended wholesale changes at Hockey Canada just a day before the resignations on Tuesday. Cromwell led a third-party review, and an interim report was released today. Now let's bring in CTV National Parliamentary Correspondent uh, here in the Bureau, Annie Bergeron-Oliver. Thanks for being with us once again, Annie. In this report, Cromwell talks about the governance and specifically mm -hmm. the makeup of the board. What did he suggest in terms of the board of directors and how it should look going forward? 
So he basically said that there needed to be major overhauls of the board and the nomination process. He said that the nominating committee does have a number of criteria that he said are good, but based on the way that the nomination process goes, that the nominating committee doesn't really have the ability to follow through. So he said there's really a lack of diversity on the board mm -hmm. that they need to try to improve upon. So some of his recommendations were to increase the size of the board from nine members to 13 members maximum. He said this will allow one for roles and responsibilities to be a bit more spread out so that there is less workload on each individual board member, but also so that there's more room for a diversity of opinions. He said the board needs to be more inclusive, more diverse on a wide range of areas. So those were some of the recommendations. He also said that the board should have a maximum of 60% one gender. So that's, in this case, opening it up right. to have more women on the board. I want to also ask you about the National Equity Fund, because he examined that, um, and he had said that its use was appropriate, but changes are needed. Hockey Canada also said it accepts the interim findings about the fund. So what are the changes that he raised with it and says that needed to be changed? So essentially it comes down to transparency and oversight of this National Equity Fund. So he said that having the fund was actually prudent, that it was a good thing mm -hmm. for Hockey Canada to have this fund, this reserve of money put aside so that if there were uninsured claims, such as concussions, for example, that then the, the money could be paid out. He said this was good. The problem was, he said that there wasn't a lot of accountability and oversight. There weren't right. protocols and procedures in place to guide how this fund was used and when the payouts were given. He said some payments in terms of withdrawals were kept off the books, and he even says in the report that board members may not have known how exactly these funds were used when it comes to sexual misconduct payments. And what we learned in this was that uh, 11 settlements have come out of this fund right. relating to sexual misconduct, including the 2018 allegation that was just settled in May of 2022. And he says that perhaps uh, members of the board and other senior executives didn't know that the fund was being used this way. And one interesting point is he said that the fund really had changed, that it was created in 1986 to deal with more uninsured claims. But after Graham James, most of this fund ended up being used for claims related to sexual misconduct. And he actually breaks it down. He says about 2 to 26 percent of payments made from the National Equity Fund over the last eight years were in relation to sexual misconduct. The rest of it was for other types of claims and related to insurance. So almost one in four. That's incredible. Yeah, over the last eight years. And he said it had really shifted over the years towards more of a reserve fund for claims uh, related to sexual misconduct. The saga continues. Annie Bergeron all over. Thanks for joining us here in studio. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Let's move over now to another political face-off. This one is happening in New Brunswick. Dominic Carty has stepped down as education minister in a blistering letter to Premier Blaine Higgs. Honestly, reading it, it was like he was dragging his nails on the chalkboard on his way out of the classroom, folks. Carty says he has reached a tipping point. While his, well, he, well, his premier is working, his working styles and values have diverged. Here is just part of the letter that he wrote. It reads, quote, your behavior at a recent meeting where you refused to even read evidence you had specifically requested instead of choosing to yell, quote, data my expletive, at a senior civil servant because you didn't like what the data showed you. Well, that was the, the end of your political project in my eyes. A power play did reach out to Premier's office for a statement, but his office did not respond. Cardi says he will stay on as a progressive conservative MLA for his riding, 
but he can't. But can he stay with the party if he's got such a problem with the leader? Well, let's find out. Joining me now is progressive conservative MLA Dominic Cardi. Welcome, Mr. Cardi. Thanks very much for joining us. I wanted to say your letter of resignation really didn't mince words. I'd hate to see the first draft and what that might have looked like. Um, how has the my premier responded to as, your letter? Uh, my girlfriend's laughing as you said that <laughs> she saw it. But it was. Uh, I mean, in the end, I think the, res the letter speaks for itself in the way in which uh, the premier, unfortunately, today responded to it, confirmed everything in it. He said that, yes, he is intending to end a, a French immersion program for New Brunswick students. He admitted that he had abolished an elected branch of government without consulting cabinet uh, and, and admitted that he had not acted on any of the recommendations from a report on uh, dealing with our second languages in New Brunswick. New Brunswick, of course, being Canada's only bilingual province. For me, though, this is it's part of a much bigger problem. You look around the Western world, we're seeing democracies where politicians keep on thinking they can get away with not being clear and transparent with people. People can see through it. And ultimately, it's the responsibility of people involved in politics in that system to take a stand when they see that behavior, to say that it's not an, this is not good enough, because if we don't, we're going to be ceding the ground to the populists of the left and the right who want nothing more than to see democratic politicians fight amongst themselves so they can open up space for their own toxic brand of politics. And I'm not interested in being part of that. This is that's uh, certainly not worth the not worth any sacrifice of my principles to uh, to carry on with a government where unfortunately the leader is acting against the principles of the party. I'm a proud progressive conservative. So no, I'll just I'll just ask you point blank then. So in your opinion, is Premier Premier Higgs fit to stay on as premier? I think my letter is pretty clear about my perspective on the leader's position, and I hope he uh, thinks seriously about uh, the letter. He today had a, said something about how, as education minister, there wouldn't be anyone who would say that uh, I managed to accomplish anything in four years. And I've been bombarded all day with hundreds and hundreds of emails and letters and phone calls from parents and folks involved in education, teachers and EAs, early childhood educators, saying they're sorry to see me go. And working with those folks was the greatest honor of my life. Uh, and I think it's just, again, people are tired of this sort of rather nasty politics. You've got to be aggressive sometimes. My letter was certainly aggressive intentionally because we've got to talk seriously about the problem of politics being dishonest. Because if democratic politics can't regain a deep-rooted commitment to honesty and a certain set of principles around how we behave, as you mentioned in the quote that you read from my letter, we've got to treat people better. Dealing with civil servants in the way that I've seen in my time in government is utterly unacceptable. Civil servants aren't perfect, but God knows politicians aren't either. And if we don't start treating each other as people working on a common project, then I think that our democracy is going to be in grave danger. And again, we are seeing that uh, around the world and sadly here in Canada as well. So I've got under a minute uh, for this last one, but Premier Higgs said he was going to shuffle you out of your portfolio. What do you have to say to that? Well, uh, I did the job for him, I guess, because I resigned on principle, which I think is about the best way that you can end any time as a minister, uh, short of uh, finishing out your term confident and happy in your government and leader's direction. I lost confidence in the premier, and that's why I resigned. I'm looking forward to working to fight for some of the values that we've been talking about. We need better political options in Canada. I'm a proud provincial progressive conservative, but I'm really looking forward to working more with a group called Centre Ice Canadians to try and rally people around radical centrist ideas in Canada so that we can actually have a real option to fight back against this dangerous disintegration that on the one hand sees old school politics that doesn't work, and on the other, populist foolishness that deeply endangers our democracy and our way of life. I'm almost out of time here, but you bring up the, the, the center-right conservative. So does that mean that you're going to try and break off with your own party? Because right now you're staying on as a progressive conservative. You have no faith in the leader. 
So are you looking to build your own party here? No, no, the, the centerized Canadians, we changed our name to centerized Canadians. It's uh, for because we were getting so many people from other parties joining and rallying around ideas that other people weren't talking about. Provincially, I'm a proud progressive conservative and look forward to working with my caucus colleagues to get a lot of the great things that have been part of our agenda done. Uh, politics and parties are more than one man, and so are governments, and leaders change, and I'm looking forward to being around to contribute in whatever way I can here in the province and, uh, and working on those other projects, as I mentioned, across the country. Dominic Cardi, former education minister in New Brunswick, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate having you on. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, coming up, Canada's budget watchdog has a new fiscal forecast. How long will this economic storm stick around? We find out from Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Jihou on the other side of the break. Canada's budget watchdog is warning Canadians of an economic slowdown. In his economic and fiscal outlook today, the parliamentary budget officer projects real GDP growth to slow considerably for the rest of this year and will remain weak through next year. And if that wasn't enough, the PBO warns there are concerns over severe global slowdowns. Now, it's all not all doom and gloom. The PBO does expect interest rates to drop by the end of 2023 also projects this year's federal deficit to be half of what the government had projected in its April budget. So, with Canadians currently struggling with high cost of living, how much longer will Canadians have to weather the economic storm before things clear up? Joining me now is the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. Welcome, Mr. Giroux. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. So, we do have some good news on the horizon. Let's start with the bad, because I, my mom always <laughs> said get that out of the way first. Slow growth next year, this year into next year. Mm -hmm. How long before we have to start talking about the dreaded R-word, recession? Um, barring any unforeseen event on the world stage, for example, another big economic shock with the war in Ukraine or something bad happening in an emerging economy like a financial crisis, we should not be talking about a recession. What we expect is more akin to a, a soft landing with the economy slowing down now, like in the second half of 2022, in 2023, and then picking up again in 2024, helped by exports and also by uh, an uptick in, in demand. That's a relief to many, I'm sure, not to have to talk about the R word. Yes, and <laughs> it's a relief to me too, but it's, it's not a guarantee that there won't be a recession. No, sure. It's just that we don't see a recession as the most likely scenario with the, the evidence and, and what we are seeing in the economy right now. And part of that is the global economy. Canada doesn't operate in a vacuum. So how much of this is what Canada can control versus what's happening in the global economy? Well, it's, it's very little that Canada can control. In fact, if there was to be a recession in Europe, for example, or a more, much more significant downturn in the U.S., of course, that would have implications for Canada, and it could trigger a technical recession. But with the state of the labor market that we are seeing right now, um, even a technical recession, two consecutive uh, Mm -hmm. quarters of negative growth would not have a dramatic impact on the labor markets because of the labor shortages that we are seeing in many parts of the country. 
You also noted that we now have some more fiscal room, that this government has some more fiscal room. So there's choices that a government has to make. You had suggested there's a possibility that they could invest in new policy programs if they wanted to. There's also the option of paying down the debt, which is getting more expensive to service because of the higher interest rates. In your estimation, you know, what's the better road ahead? Well, I'm not making any suggestions as to what's the best way forward. Mm -hmm. These are policy decision decisions. But what we're seeing is that due to, in part, inflation, but also in part to better tax yields, the government is benefiting from increased revenues, which is contributing to lowering the deficit. So we don't yet have the numbers for the year that ended in March, but we expect these uh, to be better than, than what the government mm -hmm. forecasted. And for the current fiscal year, the one that we are in, we expect the deficit to be around $26 billion. And that improvement should, should be reflected in the subsequent years with a deficit in the absence of any new spending about th of about $3 billion in 2026. So whatever the government decides to do with that additional fiscal room, uh, reducing the deficit or spending it depends on what the government's decisions and choices will be. But that's not for me to pronounce on whether they should or should not. I've got about 30 seconds. This report did take into account some of the affordability measures yes. that they did take into it, that they did announce. Uh, in your estimation, how much could this affect growth and will the affordability plan actually have an impact on inflation? Well, the affordability uh, package is relatively small compared to the size of the economy, so it should not have a noticeable or measurable impact on overall inflation. Mr. Jihu, Parliamentary Budget Officer, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks very much for being here. My pleasure. Up next, does the government have a solid case to defend the historic use of the Emergencies Act? Former Justice Minister Peter McKay joins the press gallery next. Stay right here. Power Play will be right back. enter uh, into using the Emergencies Act lightly. We used it uh, with a sense of uh, it was the necessary tool at the time. Uh, we used it in a way that was measured and proportionate. Uh, and we're really pleased that the Commission is going to be able to hear from all these witnesses. And that was why I offered to appear. Welcome back. Invoking the Emergencies Act was a historic moment. And after it was done, law enforcement ended the Ottawa convoy. But was it necessary and justified? A public inquiry that launched today in Ottawa gets just six weeks to answer those questions. So what happens if the commission finds the federal government was not justified? And is six weeks even enough time to get answers? Well, we're going to get some answers from the press gallery. They're, that panel's up now. We have CTV National reporter here in studio, Judy Trin. Thanks for joining us. We also have the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto, Store, Toronto Star, Robert Benzie. Nice to see you, Robert. And, of course, special guest, former Justice Minister Peter McKay. Thank you all for being here. Mr. McKay, let's start with you. Do you think the federal government was justified in invoking the Emergencies Act? I don't, uh, Michael. I think there's uh, a very sort of strict interpretation found in the legislation that the federal government will have a hard time getting over. And, and that is essentially a number of elements around there being a risk to public safety, a risk to human health, uh, something that seriously threatened the government's ability to, to, to protect the sovereignty and, and, and basically the, the security of the country. 
and whether there was any other means in which they could have achieved the necessary outcome, which was ending the protest and clearing the streets, essentially. And I think on that criteria, they're going to have a hard time. Uh, we're going to hear from 60-plus witnesses over, over six weeks. There'll be a lot of interpretations, but that's what it will boil down to, in my estimation. And keeping in mind, there's no criminal or, or civil findings of guilt uh, here. This is really going to be a, an exercise, in many cases, of uh, a lot of politics behind the scenes and, and the commission and the commissioner here um, making rulings that are not really binding, but, but are recommendations. Now, you talked about the politics. So I want to follow up on that with you. What happens if the inquiry finds that the federal government was not justified in invoking the act? I had Yasser Nakfi here earlier on, the parliamentary secretary for the emergency preparedness minister. He wouldn't answer that. Obviously, he was not going to entertain that question. But if they find that the government was not justified in using it, does somebody have to lose their job? Well, I think the person probably most in the firing line beyond the prime minister is the public safety minister who, who's made a couple of quite extraordinary statements that have already seemingly been proved to be false, mainly that the police were demanding the federal government invoke the Emergency Act and, and take these extraordinary steps. That already appears to be false, but uh, you can be sure that there'll be a lot of political hay made over that subject, and I suspect they'll be calling for his head first and foremost if, in fact, this inquiry finds uh, that the government did overreach and that that uh, statement cannot be proven. Judy, you were in the room today for the mm -hmm. kickoff. What are the stakes here that you're seeing uh, that has really set the stage for the next six weeks? Well, Commissioner Rouleau will try very hard to keep politics out of it, right? But there were already a little bit, a little bit of fireworks on the first day. And by this, I mean when Tamara Leach walks into the room with her lawyer, Keith Wilson, and there is a cluster of media wanting to know what she's going to say. She's already said that she's going to be there for the entire hearing. Now, she is going to be uh, slated to, to testify mm -hmm. probably uh, in about three or four weeks. What we do know is that she She's also facing criminal charges. Right. Now, uh, you know, Peter McKay mentioned that this is not about a finding of guilt in any way. It's not a criminal proceeding. But Tamara Leach and other members of the convoy organizers are facing uh, criminal right. charges. However, whatever they say at this commission cannot be used for them in any court. So they will want to be as transparent as possible. And we could be hearing uh, details uh, from their perspective that we've never heard before. As you you know these convoy organizers have not been very open no. uh, with media they have not allowed us into their news right. conferences so it'll be very interesting to see Mike Rob I wanted to ask you about the timeline it's super quick for a final report I mean it's due in February other inquiries like Air India they've had four years is there a problem with this and and can they really get to the bottom of it going so quickly uh, I mean, remember, Mike, the protest lasted three weeks and the, the inquiry's going to last six weeks. So you're right. It's, uh, it's certainly an expedited uh, process. But, I mean, I'm not sure that the, the, this, is, this is not a, a hugely complicated thing. It's not like the Air India inquiry in the sense that that was, you know, 300 Canadians murdered uh, in, a, in, a, in a bombing of an airplane. There was geopolitical uh, things happening at the same time. That was a much more complicated thing. This is a pretty narrowly focused uh, uh, protest uh, that 
you know, in Ottawa, and then of course the Ambassador Bridge in, in Windsor that was briefly occupied uh, by uh, by related uh, protesters, uh, and and that forced the Ontario government to change some laws in the wake of that. That was costing the Ontario economy seven hundred million dollars every single day that that bridge was jammed. So I think that six weeks is is a tight timeline. Uh, should it be longer? I think it should be, but I'm I'm just glad that we're going to have an airing of this to what uh, to Peter's point that to find out was this justified and, and there's an argument to made that it wasn't justified. Uh, that being said, I don't think that the Prime Minister is going to uh, mind uh, showing his hand and saying, here's what I was facing. Um, in Ottawa, police were overwhelmed. I mean, there was nothing happening for three weeks. It wasn't like, you know, they were at the brink of a, of a breakthrough and then they got heavy handed and, and had the Emergencies Act. This was a, a bit of a stalemate, I think. Uh, and I was traveling at the time, Mike, in Los Angeles, and it was all over CNN, Fox News, the LA Times. This was a huge embarrassment to a, to a, went to see a G7 country's capital city, uh, you know, gripped by protests. Mr. McKay, I wanted to talk to you about the timeline as well. Uh, you know, Commissioner Rouleau complained about it essentially at the beginning without really complaining about it. Do you think that Parliament should take a look and try and, you know, amend the law to say, you know what, we'll give him more time? Because you would need all parties on board for that. Well, that's right. And uh, I suspect that there would be a, a significant debate in the House of Commons to amend the Emergency Act. But to Robert's point, you know, we have seen very complicated criminal proceedings um, proceed in, in this time frame. It's not ideal. And in fact, if, if Commissioner Rouleau is getting near the end of the runway and decides that he needs more time, I suspect that that request could be made, although not envisioned by the legislation. But I think that there would be, um, uh, certainly on the part of the government, they would want to entertain that if they were not able to get through the, the sufficient timeline or the evidence in the timeline. I, I do believe that, uh, you know, Commissioner Rouleau is going to try to keep things moving and, as was stated previously, try to keep the, the parameters in place and, and not allow too much politics to enter into the discussion, although that's going to be omnipresent. It's going to be all around, uh, if not in the room. It's going to certainly be uh, on the lips of everybody outside the room. And I, I think what you're going to see is, is really an effort to try to focus in on, on several key points, and that is, was it justified? Was there overreach here? And what, if any, evidence can be found in the documents? And I personally think that there's going to be a really interesting narrative emerge from the documents that may either contradict or confirm uh, the storyline coming out of the government and, and those in opposition who have a completely different take on this. Um, the provinces, of course, figure very prominently in this as well. They've stated their positions at the outset, at least Alberta and Manitoba, making it very clear that they didn't think there was sufficient consultation and that they were able, they, the provinces, were able to deal with the protests at the border in their provinces without invoking legislation or, or changing provincial legislation, but simply using police enforcement, which is a, a, a position that many have taken. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it right there for the press gallery. Mr. McKay, you'll be leaving us, but uh, Rob and Judy will be staying, so we'll continue that. Thanks again, Mr. McKay, for joining us. We really appreciate that. After the break, Canada is imposing more sanctions against Iran. But do they go far enough, and are they targeting the right people? Next, we bring in a special guest who knows the dangers of Iran's crackdown on women's rights. She was arrested in 2018 for removing her hijab in protest. Power Play will be right back.
Canada is placing more sanctions on Iran. 17 more individuals and three entities will be barred from entering Canada and doing business with most Canadian firms. Some of the new names on the list include former Iranian defense and foreign affairs ministers, a prison director, and the head of the state broadcaster. Now, the government says these people have participated in or enabled gross human rights violations, including against Iranian women. It's alleged they've also spread disinformation to justify Iran's regime. So, as Iran continues to be rocked by protests, do these Canadian sanctions go far enough? Let's bring back the press gallery. We've got CTV News' Judy Trin, Toronto Star's Robert Benzi, and our special guest is women's rights activist Azam Jangravi. In 2018, she was arrested for removing her hijab in protest. It's very nice to have you back. We'll start with you, Ms. Jangravi. What was your experience with the Iranian regime in getting arrested in 2018? Uh, actually, I was arrested uh, by the police forces for removing my hijab and protesting compulsory hijab. Uh, the regime tried to pressure me in any way that they could. Uh, but uh, when they saw that I am not gi uh, giving up, they tried to take my daughter away from me. Uh, in order uh, uh, to save her, I had to risk uh, crossing the border on uh, foot uh, to flee the country and save uh, both of us. Uh, we couldn't be killed, uh, but uh, we were given no other choice. I also wanted to know what you're hearing about the protests from people on the ground right now in Iran. Uh, actually, I'm hearing that uh, protests are continuing all across the country. The regime, uh, the regime security forces are being brutal in dealing with pro uh, uh, protesters, but the people aren't uh, backing down. Uh, they continue to protest even though uh, it's risky, but uh, they have... Uh, had enough of this regime that uh, denies them all their rights. And they are standing up with great courage and saying enough. So what do Canadians need to know about this police force, though? Um, um, the uh, police forces, uh, or um, they... Um, um, pressure are um, on um, uh, all protested and uh, we have seen uh, actually as we have seen uh, some protesters was killed uh, uh, by uh, security police and uh, uh, they uh, beaten and uh, arrested a lot of young people um, even students Now, I'm going to turn to Judy for a second here. We're hearing from the government that the foreign affairs minister is working on rallying international support uh, to help Iranian women. Do you think these sanctions have any teeth if we do not have this coordinated effort? Well, of course, there's strength in numbers, right? So the fact that diplomats are working behind the scenes to uh, get more partners on side is important to do. But you know what else is important? I think that uh, this government is has a disconnect. Uh, it's important right now to help uh, women human rights defenders that are currently uh, seeking help immediately mm -hmm. from this country. And when I say that, I mean... Uh, 
the, this government is not talking the talk, right? Or is not walking the talk. Uh, and for example, yesterday I did a story on a woman, an Afghan uh, human rights defender, mm -hmm. women's rights defender by the name of uh, Farzana Adal Gadia. And basically, her uh, application for asylum was rejected because of a bungled uh, bureaucratic error. Her right. application was assessed as a uh, temporary, as a visa application instead of a, a permit uh, for temporary mm -hmm. residence. And of course, she was seeking asylum here. That's what she wanted. She never made any, uh, she never tried to hide that. But my question is that her, she got basically a robotic rejection form letter. So the question is, you have, you know of a woman where 30,000 people have signed a petition calling on this government to help her. Mm -hmm. And this government has not uh, even done its due diligence in looking fully at her application. Right. So how can we say that we are actually uh, in support of women's rights around the world when we cannot even help those who come to us, who right. seek it from us, and we know of them? Yeah, exactly. And Rob, I wanted to ask you specifically on the sanctions against Iran. Is it the case that Canada really can't completely freeze out the regime because they need to have dialogue with that country over the investigation into the downflight PS752? I mean, do you think that's why Canada isn't taking a harder line with Iran? I think, you know what, Mike, that's in the backdrop for sure. I mean, and I understand, you know, but they're going to have to, you know, be able to juggle and chew gum at the same time, the Canadian government. And there's a lot of pressure, to, to Judy's point, there's a lot of pressure on Ottawa to start uh, walking the walk, not just talking the talk and doing little cute hashtags. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had 50,000 uh, people in Richmond Hill protesting uh, what's happening in Iran. And, you know, that's, a, that's home to uh, a huge and thriving Persian community here in Ontario. And, Mike, that was a, that's one of the largest protests we've seen in Canada in many, many years. And, the, and a friend of mine was there and was saying that it was really something to see. And guess who else was there talking to that crowd? Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, the leader of the mm -hmm. opposition. And a lot of people who were at that protest were wondering, why wasn't there someone from the federal government there speaking? Uh, it's, a, it's a writing. Uh, federal, it's held liberally uh, by the liberals federally. So, I mean, it's, this is, this is a, a pressure point for the liberal government, and I think it should be. What happened to that young woman in Iran is, a sh is shocking to people in every corner of the world. And I think that uh, I, I think the government starts needs to start uh, doing more than just symbolic gestures. Sanctions are a good start, but they're not they're not outlawing you know the, the, the you know doing the, uh, all the outlawing that they could be doing with this regime. Yeah, Ms. Jing Ravi, I just wanted to ask you, what do you make of the Canadian sanctions? Do they go far enough? Target the right people? And should the government really list Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terrorist entity? Uh, I welcome uh, the sanctions that uh, Canada announced today and those that were uh, uh, directed at uh, 10,000 RGC members last week. Uh, these are important uh, steps. I uh, want to make sure, though, that our sanctions prevent Iranian regime officials from sending their families to Canada and keeping their money in Canada. I hope Canada has been tracking of whether regime uh, officials and their families are in Canada and will uh, take action. 
Well, I appreciate you being with us. Very kind of you, Azam Jengravi. Thank you so much for participating in this. Judy Trin here in studio, Robert Benzi from the Toronto Star. Thank you all so much. We'll be keeping an eye on this for sure. That is your Power Play Day in politics. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. We'll be back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night, everyone.